My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listen to an interview of me on the Nick Talaferro Show on WURD Radio in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In this interview, we discuss the recent case of a South Carolina school resource officer who was fired after throwing a 16-year-old student across a classroom. You're listening to a podcast of the Nick Taliaferro Show, exclusively on 900AMWURD.com. Let's get to the conversation that is a part of the national dialogue. It's based on that horrible video that we all saw featuring Deputy Ben Fields and an unnamed young lady in a classroom being truculent, being obstinate, perhaps uh, being disobedient, maybe. But what happened next surprised everyone. And that was when Ben Fields flipped her and chair over backwards, grabbed her, tossed her across the room like so much flotsam and jet and then affected an arrest as though she was Billy the Kid, uh, James Cagney, uh, John Dillinger, all wrapped up into one. This situation led to the firing of Ben Fields today by Richland County Sheriff Leon Lott. But what it really brings to the fore is a question about the presence of police officers in schools. These individuals are called school resource officers. And the man who pretty much wrote the chapter and verse on what they doing there or whether they should be there at all is a gentleman who joins us now. He happens to be an associate professor in the criminal justice program at Bowling Green State University. Please make welcome Dr. Philip Stenson. Dr. Stenson, thank you for joining us today and welcome to WURD in Philadelphia. Oh, thanks. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on board. And I was really pleased to look at your work on the subject of school resource officers that you wrote approximately, what, two and a half years ago. Yeah, I uh, I wrote a paper that got published in a uh, peer-reviewed journal on uh, crime by school resource officers. You know, my primary area of research here at Bowling Green is in the area of police crime, that is, crime committed by sworn law enforcement officers. And when I started working that, actually, I was uh, uh, a graduate student at Westchester University at, right outside. Oh, really? Yep. I practiced law in Philadelphia for about a decade and pretty much imploded professionally and personally and decided I'd live a lot longer if I wasn't a litigator in Philadelphia. <laughs> so I decided to dust myself off. I went back and got a master's at Westchester and a uh, Ph.D. in criminology at IUP. So while I was at Westchester in, in 2004, the issue came up in an ethics class as to whether police officers get in trouble much, whether they get arrested. And the class was full. Probably about half the people were uh, you know, mid-career police officers, and they all said, no, that's kind of thing never happens, and I thought that was really absurd, and uh, decided that you know, it would be something interesting to work on as a class project, just to, to prove them wrong and to win a bet. I think the bet was probably something like pint of ale or something like that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, at the time, Google Alerts were new. Google Alerts are these things you can set up with Google, where you set up a search term and you just let it run, and it constantly crawls the Google search engine. Well, in this case, I was interested in crawling the Google News search engine. I set up 48 Google Alert search terms and just let it rip. Every time there's a hit, I get an email email with a link to a news article. I kept collecting this stuff after that semester was over and when I went on to a doctoral program and ultimately decided that I would take the, the data that I had collected in the way of 
news reports uh, from 2005 through 2007 and make that the basis for my doctoral dissertation. And at that time, I didn't know, you know what I was going to be able to make of this. I, I uh, struggled to come up with 109 quantitative variables at the time. I ended up with over 2,000 cases during that three-year period, uh, sworn law enforcement officers across the country. So we're talking deputy sheriffs, police officers, state troopers, uh, even tribal officers, park police officers, that kind of thing. Uh, so all non-federal officers, all with a general power of arrest. So we had uh, you know, those cases in three years. And then when I came to uh, finish my PhD, came to Bowling Green in 2009 and decided that I wanted to, you know, this time it was all paper-based. I knew they had a digital right. database system here, started building this database. And then in 2011, we were awarded a grant from the National Institute of Justice at the U.S. Department of Justice to continue my research. And now the good thing about that is I had research money, I had grant money, and I could hire graduate assistants. And so, it's yeah. a whole different story, well, literally to repeat my dissertation, but with, you know, with a staff. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, it is great work that's done, and it becomes uh, very poignant now as it links up with this story that is in the news about Ben Fields and school resource officers. I was surprised to know from your work that there were something like, what, 17,000 uh, school resource officers around the country? That's right. That That's a figure from about 2007, and I haven't seen a more recent figure. So about 17,000 school resource officers across the country. And the best estimate is that over half of the public schools in the country have school resource officers. Up until the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in December of 2012, it was less common to have school resource officers at elementary schools, but we're even seeing that now. I was surprised. I mean, I'm a child of the late 60s, early 70s. I was shocked to find out that this, you know, I thought the school resource officers were brought in to the schools when gang warfare in urban centers and also drugs became a big issue. But I was surprised to find out that this started somewhere in the 1950s and the 1960s. It started in the 1950s and the 60s, starting with bicycle safety programs where officer friendly would come around to the schools <laughs> and that sort of thing. And it morphed into various things. And, and a lot of your listeners may be familiar with the DARE program. The I remember the DARE program, yeah. Programs. Well, all the research on DARE says it's completely ineffective. If anything, it's potentially harmful to the fifth graders that are exposed to the program. How is that so? Well, they're exposed to things that they otherwise might not be exposed to. The, all the research says it's completely ineffective. And yet it's very popular. It's politically popular. It's very popular with school districts. It's very popular with uh, DARE officers, officers who are assigned to that. So over time, the the role of school resource officers has evolved. And with some of the school shootings, you know, starting with Columbine and going forward, we seem to start there as, you know, day one. You know, things have changed over the years. But the original idea with when we started using the term school resource officers, and I think the earliest programs were actually in Flint, Michigan, and Miami, Florida, that it was, it was two-tiered. One was for safety, to bring safety into the school. Up until Columbine, police officers were trained that when they got to a scene like that, they would gather the troops literally in the, you know, the front of the building or stage them outside, wait for the SWAT team, wait for things to die down. After that, the training has changed so that the officers are told to get in there as quickly okay. as they can and engage the shooter. 
So by having school resource officers, somebody there armed with a gun sitting around the school doing something, there have been some cases where they've been able to disable a shooter quickly, you know, within a minute and a half or so that would not have happened otherwise. And then the other thing was to get kids familiar with law enforcement officers right. in a non-adversarial way. Well, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can do that with the you know, police athletic association where the guys are coaches or things like that. So one of the problems that's developed is there's a role ambiguity here. I was going to bring that up. I mean, the question of ambiguity about their roles, I was, I was reading that in, in your work there. And that are, are you saying by that, that that the police officers are not really clear as to what they're supposed to be doing at the school? They're completely unclear. There, there's a variety of things going on here. A lot of the officers go by what they call a uh, triad model, where they're part counselor, part educator, part police officer. But there's several problems with that. First problem with that is that they're not trained counselors and they're not trained educators. Um, uh, frankly, many school resource officers have never gone to college, and, and that's okay. However, you're dealing with school teachers who have not only gone to college but are certified school teachers in public schools. They're trained in pedagogical issues. They're trained how to be teachers. Okay. Uh, they're not counselors. They're not trained on how to de-escalate situations with students. You know, all these types of things are problems. An- another related problem is it's often not clear who uh, supervises and manage the school resource officers because typically they're employed by outside law enforcement agencies in a lot of rural areas around the country. It's sheriff offices. Now, there are school districts that have their own SROs, but typically these are deputy sheriffs, police officers who work the streets for several years and then apply for the lateral transfer position in. So the school principals, they don't have a lot of control necessarily over the school resource officers. So when you've got these people there working in the schools and it's not really clear what they're supposed to be doing, are they a mentor, are they a counselor, are they an educator, are they a police officer, are they a security guard? You know, all these things wrapped up into one quite often don't have specialized training for their new role as a school resource officer. It would take a lot of training to get somebody ready for that type of a job. And then what we see here with Van Fields is that he's treating this child as if she were a, you a know, felon. somebody who had done him wrong right. in his face after a bank robbery. You know, a felon. You're right. Treating them as a felon. And frankly, uh, he's lucky he didn't kill her because when I watched that video over and over again, it just sends chills up my spine to watch how she was dropped on her, her neck. Yeah, right. I, I was. You know, it's, it's funny, uh, Dr. Stinson, I was noticing the same thing. When he flipped her backwards like that, uh, that could have easily put pressure uh, on the, the cervical bones of her of her neck and that could have been it for her that could have been it she he literally could have killed her and i don't think that's uh, uh going too far i really think that could have happened so you know those are street justice tactics that he used there nobody ever trained him to do that kind of a thing so i was thinking about that watching this video and i actually showed it to a group of my students in a class this morning and they had some very definite opinions about this whole thing and there was a lot of diversity in the class and it was a really good class but I was thinking back while I was in law school in in the District of Columbia, uh, after I'd been a police officer for several years, I worked as a juvenile detention counselor in uh, Northern Virginia at a juvenile detention center. And they had training there where we were trained in passive restraints. We were trained that if a child was giving you passive resistance in a chair such as this, you would absolutely never lay a finger on that 
juvenile. You just wouldn't do it. And that's the law, actually, in many states as to secure facilities, as to residential facilities. Well, what do you think? So, uh, what was it so that... We actually, by the way, we had actually training where we had, we had drills where we had to deal with exactly what this officer had to deal with. with it. We didn't have cell phones back then, but obstinate kids, you know, in well, the same situation. What do you think, Dr. Stenson, and for those of you who are just joining us, we'll open the phone lines now as well. 215-634-8065 is the number. That's 215-634-8065. If you're outside of the Philadelphia local calling area, toll-free calls are accepted at 866-361-0900. That is 866-361-0900. It is our privilege to have joining us in this conversation, Dr. Philip Stenson, Associate Professor in the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. Uh, He is the author of a paper concerning school resource officers and criminality. In this case, he is applying his experience and his wisdom as a lawyer, a former police officer, and a professor on the situation that is currently before us. The case of Ben Fields was recently fired as a deputy for what he did to a young lady in a classroom in South Carolina. If they're not trained to do that, and you told us that they were not, and as a former officer, that has a lot of credibility here. What led him to believe that that was the proper way to resolve the issue of this young lady being noncompliant? Uh, business as usual. That that's the way. That's sad. That's the way he does things. So you know, if you look at the videos, and I and until today I had not seen anything but that first video. And what struck me, uh, and was the most alarming thing about that first video, there's a boy sitting in the front of the classroom. I, I, my recollection is he was wearing a red sweater, a red shirt. Maybe wrong about that. Right. Um, but as this was going on, not only did he not look over at the officer, he never made eye contact with the officer, and he looked straight ahead and a little bit down. I noticed that. Yeah. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, something's going on here because either the students, including that young man, are terrified of this officer and or they've seen it before, that this is business as usual, literally, and that they knew, you know, you say one thing out of line and you're next. And apparently that's exactly what happened to another young lady in that classroom. That's what I heard. I understand that she confronted the officer and uh, he came back in and said, you want some of this? You're going to jail also. Took her her in handcuffs. Uh, and, and took her away. We've got to take a break right now, Dr. Phillips Stenson, but when we come back, I want to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline concept and how school reform officers might link up with that and actually fuel it. Can you give us a few minutes on the other side of this break? Oh, I'd be happy to. Dr. Phillips Stenson is our guest from Bowling Green State University. We'll come back and continue our conversation with him about school resource officers right here on 900 AM WURD. You're listening to Nick. Come on, celebrate. It's 23 minutes after the hour of 6 o'clock. Coming along in the 7 o'clock hour, it's time for Youth Words right here in the city of Philadelphia at WRD AM 900. Final uh, moments, final half hour of the Nick Taliaferro Show. Joining us on the line from Bowling Green State University is Dr. Philip Stenson, Associate Professor in the Criminal Justice Program there. He is the author of a scholarly paper that was written concerning school resource officers and criminality. He is applying not only his knowledge as a researcher, but his experience as an attorney 
Kennedy as a police officer on what happened in that classroom yesterday. Uh, one of the things that you shared in your paper was that many people are connecting the presence of police officers in our schools with the notion of a school to prison pipeline. And, and it, it made me think about something. I hadn't thought about it from this perspective, and that is when students are accustomed to having police officers in school and having that enforcement of criminal justice on them, that it may tend to criminalize them while they're in school, making it easier for them to find themselves doing things that will lead them toward prison. Is that a rational consideration? Yeah, I think it is. When, when I think of the school-to-prison pipeline, I think of three components of that. I think of academic failure, uh, discipline practices that exclude kids from the classroom and from the regular school, and dropping out of high school. And along with the disciplinary practices, I'd say the zero-tolerance policies, which are certainly prevalent in school districts in the, the Philadelphia area. So we've got we've got those uh, you know three components there working together. And, and there's something else I'd add to it. You know, I did a uh, – actually, it was my uh, master's thesis at Westchester over 10 years ago now, where I studied girls that were brought into the juvenile delinquency system, and we were studying them at the time of intake, when they were first brought into the delinquency system. And what we found was that girls had very, very high rates of having a history of trauma, traumatic experiences. And since then, I've really studied that a lot and looked into it. And most of the girls that are brought into the juvenile justice system and the young women who are brought into the criminal justice system have experienced trauma in their life. They have a background of serious traumatic experiences. And obviously this young lady who we saw, you know, whipped out of her chair, that's a traumatic experience. And that's one of the things that we see that's common with the young ladies that find themselves in this school, the prison pipeline. Trauma. Let let me ask this question. as These these kids have seen it before. The the way that they did not react is is really troubling. Did you you hear that this uh, police officer had a nickname? No, I can only imagine. They called him the Hulk. Yeah, okay. Uh, and and because because of his explosive mentality and his uh, his bruising uh, presence that uh, they called him the Hulk. Uh, yeah, well, it seems to me that somebody with that sort of a demeanor is a poor candidate to be a school resource officer. That's just not the right person. That's the guy that you want maybe out there, right, exactly you know, breaking down doors somewhere, but not in a high school. Uh, let me let me ask you. Let me let me set you across the table from Wayne Lapierre, who is the head of the National Rifle Administration. Who, after the shootings that took place uh, up in New England, Sandy Hook, he said that the best defense against a guy, a bad guy with a gun, is a good guy with a gun. I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Stinson, are you suggesting that we should not have school resource officers as they currently exist? And if not, what do we do when it comes to having people in school systems to protect children against the, quote, bad guy with the gun? Well, these, these are important policy questions, and it's, it's time to have that discussion right now on a national level because, you know, because we have job uh, ambiguity, role ambiguity here, because we don't have standardized training for these officers or even agreement as to what they're supposed to do or what their job description is or exactly, you know, who they work for, or, you know, what is the principal's authority, those kinds of things, I do think we need to step back and reconsider this, and it's, it's an important thing. You could have 
people who were armed in a school, security guards, I suppose, or even police in a different capacity. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of troubled by guns in schools all the way around. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just frightens me. But I understand the idea, and I understand why parents would want to have a law enforcement presence in the school. However, you know, a lot of parents that I've dealt with over the years have come to uh, rethink that when their child has gotten in the way of the school resource officer and ended up tossed out of school. It was never meant that a school resource officer should get involved in routine school discipline, school troubles. You know, it was never meant to involve the police, you know, in these. And sometimes we even have police involved in the investigation of routine school discipline. Oh, yeah. That's that's a problem. That's a huge problem. Well, let me ask the question about the 800-pound gorilla in the room on almost everything in the United States at some point along the discussion, and that is the issue of race. Uh, I know that police officers have been known to use undue force and unnecessary force with white students, but there seems to be a greater readiness when it is an African-American student. What part does race have to play in this? Uh, I know you don't know this instance beyond the broad strokes that everybody else knows, but in, in your research, have you noticed that race plays any part in the heavy-handed justice and use of force that SROs might use in schools? Well, several things. First of all, as to this incident, you know, I, I did hear another young lady in the class who uh, gave an interview where she was talking about, she described the 16-year-old who was yanked out of the chair and thrown across the room like a rag doll as being a little girl. So let's assume she's a 100-pound young lady, okay, just for the sake okay. of argument. I've been thinking all day, and this is a, you know, I, I guess other people have been thinking this too, but I've been thinking, all right, we're in South Carolina. What if we had a Caucasian, blonde-haired, 100-pound girl sitting in that chair, would she have been treated that way by a police officer? Uh, I, I think the question brings the answer with it. Yeah, I think it does. In my research, we have, we, we by the way, I said we had 109 variables when I, or me when I started the dissertation, and now we, in my research, we have over 270 quantitative variables that we track. So one of the problems with my research in terms of the limitations is with the data sources that we use, sometimes including court records, but always including media records, news reports, uh, videos from the news, news articles, whatever. It's very difficult to determine the race of the victim. Okay. Um, But uh, several years ago, a grad student who was Hispanic who was one of my research assistants, came to me and he said, you know, I think you're missing the boat here on race of the officer who gets arrested because we can figure that out. We've got photographs of many, many of these people. And uh, although we have gotten in, since we did decide to code for race, we've gotten into some pretty heated discussion when we look at photographs and we can't come to an agreement sometimes. That's happened once or twice. Right. But, but I actually have seen that police officers who are African-American are treated differently than the white police officers who are arrested for mis conduct. So I never thought about it from that end. Yeah. Everything involves race, unfortunately, in, in these types of situations. And I do think that you, I, I appreciate the fact that we kept race out of the discussion for the first 15 or 20 minutes, but we've got to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, we've got to yeah. talk about it. It comes up. Well, finally, Dr. Stenson, and I really appreciate your giving us some time this afternoon, and I hope that we can keep you close by as, as a resource when we need to talk about these things. Oh, but absolutely. I've been on WURD before, and I always enjoy it. Man, I, well, I appreciate having you specifically today. Finally, 
really the, the big question, though, is who's listening to Dr. Stenson? I mean, somewhere someone should be saying, hmm, we need to read what was written by Dr. Stenson, listen to him, uh, take a look at his research and find out whether or not we're doing the right thing about installing these police officers in schools. Who's listening to you? And well, what are they okay. doing after they listen? Well, it's interesting because as a social scientist, as a criminologist, you know, I often wonder if anybody reads the journal articles that we have published, that, that kind of thing, and do we reach any you know, audience at all? So one of the requirements of the federal grant that we had was to figure out practitioner-friendly, non-scholarly products to distribute from our grant, in other words, the results of our grant. So one of the things we came up with was I have a podcast that's distributed through iTunes, which sounds far more impressive hmm. than it is, but we have a huge number. Numbers of people who listen to those podcasts, uh, and I get calls from people who, who wouldn't have read a journal article. The other thing that's happened over the last year and a half is that somehow my research has found its way into uh, the news. You know, it's cited on, on television news. I've appeared on many television news shows. I've appeared on many radio shows, and it's in many, many newspapers in various different ways. And it's it's flattering, and it's it's odd, and it's in, and I think that's important. Sometimes we have to figure out a way to get the this, this knowledge, this, this scholarship out there, free it from the journals and, and free it from the classroom. And I think that's, that's important, and I hope that that continues. There is one other point I want to make. You, sure you mentioned that Ben Fields was fired today. That's the first I'd heard that. I've been in meetings all afternoon. But let me explain one thing with that. In South Carolina, it's different than Pennsylvania and New Jersey in this regard. It's a right-to-work state. There's no collective bargaining. There are no unions for public sector employees. So one of the early findings of my research was we realized that police officers who are arrested, and this guy hasn't been arrested as of now, but police officers who get in trouble in South Carolina are immediately fired. You know, we, we've had cases where a state trooper, a young state trooper, would get arrested in South Carolina for right. drunk driving, and before the sun comes up on Sunday morning, uh, the you know, the head of the state police has driven to the county jail and literally fired them. So that's business as usual. Um, that's what I would expect in, in uh, South Carolina. But the real question is, is he going to be held accountable in any other way. That, that is the question. Uh, will he be held accountable? And not only that, but we, we saw it in Ohio where an officer who didn't cut the mustard in one district uh, was kind of uh, urged out the door, not quite let go, but urged out the door and simply went to Cleveland and got another job wherein he got out of a car and shot. Michael Brillo. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, by the way, Brillo was arrested a week after he was acquitted in, in the uh, that case. So really? We call that, yeah. He, he got in a fight with his brother when they were both drunk in the middle of the night, and he still hasn't lost his job the last I heard. He was under suspension Jeez. but hadn't lost it. We call that, by the way, the officer shuffle, and we've seen that with police misconduct where they shuffle from agency to agency, sometimes within the same state, sometimes to another state, and it's very hard to track officers who had previous misconduct and keep them from getting jobs and losing their certification, if there is even such a thing in various states. But that's the officer shuffle, and it's, it's a problem. Real quick phone call for our guest, Harold from North Philadelphia. We're speaking with Dr. Philip Stenson of Bowling Green State University. Welcome to the show, Harold. Good evening. How are you? Hey, hey Nick, this guy's good. I really like him. Oh, well, <laughs> we, only the best, man, for you, Harold. Yeah, you, you only get the best. You only get the best. Uh, Nick, has he ever heard of the Office of Josie case? 
Ah, uh, I'm not sure if you have, uh, Dr. Stinson, but here in the city of Philadelphia, there was a lieutenant, a officer serving in a command role at a Puerto Rican uh, festival. Uh, there's a parade every year in Philadelphia. And there was a woman who was drinking water or she had some water and some silly string, I think. And someone was throwing water at the police officers. Things got a little tense. But this officer actually swung, hit the woman, knocked her uh, directly to her off her feet. And uh, this officer was summarily dismissed by the commissioner. Because it was on video, correct? It was on video. Right. You, right. Might, you yeah. may have seen that one. Oh, yeah. But the officer was restored with back pay and with his rank intact. And that's why Ramsey's leaving, among other reasons, because he can't take it anymore, because it's so difficult to get rid of police officers that no longer should be police officers in the city of Philadelphia. Wow. I guess, Harold, that, that is what he heard there. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want to know. Will this guy have to go before arbitration to get his job back? Uh, he's not getting his job back because there's no property right to public employment in the state of South Carolina. It's a right-to-work state. He is done. He will never be a police officer in the state of uh, South Carolina again, but only because of that. And, and I've got you know, mixed opinions about collective bargaining and union, in unions, but in this case, I think it's a good thing that we're not going we to have a yeah. badge again, at least not in South Carolina. Wow. What about another township? He could go to another state. He might go to North Carolina or something, but I think that his name's well-known. Yeah. That's probably not going to happen. Thank you, Harold. I appreciate Thank that. Uh, we got one more call from uh, Celia in Newcastle. We're speaking with Dr. Philip Stenson of Bowling Green State University. Welcome to the show, Celia. Well, thank you. Sure enough. My question is, what are the charges against the teens and whether or not they can be dropped because of his mis misconduct? That is a good point. Was the young lady charged with anything? I haven't heard. But I tell you what, any prosecutor who would get those cases with either of those young ladies, those cases ultimately are going to uh, disappear. Just like the uh, University of Virginia college student who uh, uh, got into it with the uh, alcohol beverage control officers in Charlottesville. You remember that case? Right. With the young man? Yep. Right. So those charges were quietly uh, set aside a few months later, and that's what we'll see in this case. Uh, I hope that they're not charged as an adult with anything, and I don't think they would be at that age. But, you know, the delinquency system can be rather draconian, and I, I don't see these kids getting uh, convicted or adjudicated delinquent. It's just not going to happen. Not in these cases. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Celia. Uh, finally, uh, sir, I, I want to share with you something that was stated uh, by a parent of two uh, of the school graduates uh, named Rebecca Woodford. She said, and I'm quoting now, this is not a race issue. This is, quote, I want to be defiant and not do what I'm told issue, said Rebecca Woodford. Uh, that child chose the course of action at hand. There are other people. There was a commentator on CNN who said that it was the child who uh, put this uh, action or the events in, uh, in motion by her defiance and so forth. What would you say to people who would like to lay the initiation of this action at the doorstep of the young lady who was tossed across the room by Officer Benfield? Well, well, several things. First of all, her conduct is not in dispute here. She misbehaved in the classroom, but that that's not the problem. The problem is everything that happened thereafter. You know, and, and even if she did strike the officer, I'd like to see what happened
in the two minutes before that? Uh, good you question. Know, did he touch her in any way he shouldn't have touched her? You know, what was going on there? Well, the striking so, of the officer was actually as he was flipping her over, she defensively... Uh, oh, that's when it happened? That's when it happened, well, yes. Well, that's just ridiculous. Of course, the, 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 she didn't... Uh, she was defending herself, trying to stay alive. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dr. Philip Stinson, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on board, uh, to have you share your expertise and your research with us. And I look forward to talking with you again. And thank you for taking the time to spend with us today. Oh, my pleasure. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Lost podcast. The interview originally aired live on WURD Radio AM 900 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on the afternoon of October 28, 2015. The audio recording was produced by Vincent Thompson for The Nick Talaferro Show. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an associate professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. This project was supported by award number 2011-IJCX-0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice at the United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.